Hello, good evening and welcome to this, the fifth episode. Can you believe that? Five episodes. I know I can't believe it. Thank you so much for listening, if indeed anybody is listening. Anywho, let's not worry about whether you do or do not exist. That's a question for another time. This episode, I'm joined by the rather magnificent uh, Mr Nick Amys, who is a journalist and writer uh, of some distinction and some note. Most importantly, for those of us who love Britpop, Nick is the author of She's Electric, a sort of Britpop love story, which is actually in the process of turning into a film. And if you can support Nick in those efforts by following him at Nick underscore Amy's on Twitter. And you can also find uh, an account for the movie, which is at She's Electric Mov uh, on Twitter. Please, please do give that some consideration. And uh, you can also check out the website for the movie, which is, yeah, she'selectricmovie.com. So have a look there. You can also find details on how to pledge to the movie there as well. And that would be another magnificent thing to do. Nick joined me to discuss uh, his career, his writing, but also to discuss more generally Britpop and the bands that we all know and love. There's a rather lengthy discussion about the wonders of the Blue Tones, Amen, brothers and sisters, and about Suede too. So I hope you enjoy it. Nick's a great guy and certainly somebody uh, worth listening to, which is more than can be said for me. Enjoy. Bonjour, Monsieur Amy's. Wow. <laughs> yeah, but... <laughs> How do I respond in Scottish to that, just to keep it international? Well, you, you, you would probably just say something very aggressive. Uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe some sort of threat of physical violence, or you could maybe wave some sort of deep-fried food stuff in my direction. That's uh, that tends like to be how it. we do it here. <laughs> so, uh, yes, yeah, well, thanks very much for for uh, agreeing to speak with me. I'm, I'm sure you must have much more important things to do with your time. So, thank you. I don't actually. I'm very, <laughs> very happy to very happy to speak to you. Oh, well, that's very kind. Well, I'm, I'm I'm glad your your blog and everything is going so well. You do some good stuff. Oh, that's I'm very kind. Be, I'm happy to be involved. Thank you, Nick. Thank you. That, that's that's really lovely. Well, look, I wonder if I could just um, dive straight in and start asking you uh, yeah. a couple of things that have uh, been on my mind. So, fire away. Uh, obviously, for for people who don't know Nick Amy's, you have been a writer, journalist, commentator on kind of music and popular culture and youth movements for, well, how many years now? Oh, too many to mention. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I suppose I suppose it all started way back, probably around the, the time that Britpop kicked off. So I was at college at that time, and uh, I was on that path, which I wanted to follow from, yeah, well, long way before that of telling stories, and journalism seemed to be the the way to go for that. And, uh, yeah, I got into it because the music was great and everything was going on and I wanted to write about music. And so I started then. So that was back in the mid-90s, maybe early 90s then. And, uh, yeah, I've been doing it ever since. Other stuff as well as music, but um, that's always been my passion. So I've always kept that going on the back burner when I've been doing other things as well. Well, I, th I think you're right to say that that particular period was when it was all going on. One of the things that I touch on quite a lot when I'm, well, I hesitate to describe what I do as writing when I'm speaking to a proper writer, but whenever I'm rambling about the Britpop era, 
you know, there was so much more going on than just music. You know, it, it wasn't it wasn't just country house. You know, there was fashion and design <laughs> yeah. and um, food and restaurants and politics. I mean, it was just an incredibly uh, vibrant time in British uh, popular culture, I think. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I wonder if we actually knew what it was, uh, how important it was and what was going on to the extent that we know now. Because you look back and you can see all the, the, the dots have been joined when you uh, you look back over that whole era and how things were linked and how the whole uh, country was just exploding with creativity in different ways. But um, I don't know where you were at the time, but I was in um, kind of the southeast of the UK in Norfolk and not a lot of like super <laughs> happenings were going on there, but we got the vibe and, you know, and the music, were, the, the bands were coming there so we could get to see them. So we knew and felt everything was uh, changing, and it was really exciting. But I don't know if we, at that time, got the whole thing until later on and thought, wow, yeah, we were kind of part of that, or in the middle of that somehow. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right, Nick. I mean, I, I was in a... I mean, I guess that, that particular part of England is still quite remote in lots of ways. And Yeah, you know, it is, yeah. And where I was up here in Scotland, I was in a... I was on the, the East Coast as well, in a, a place called Fife. Reasonably rural, you know, kind of former mining villages and towns. Um, but like but like you, thanks to the NME and the Melody Maker, and just a, a very vibrant live music scene, I was able to make it, you know, to, to various gigs. And then when I got a little bit older, I was able to be a bit more adventurous and sort of start making my way to London to, to take in, you know, sort of some of the bigger events and... Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, yeah, but I, I think you're right. No, I, I don't think that I was really aware of how important it was. I was aware of how exciting it all was, but I don't yeah, think I was aware yeah. of the, the kind of significance of it. No, no. I'm, I'm with you with that. The excitement was something which uh, was kind of bubbling through the streets all through those years. Yeah, it was a short time, really. I mean, uh, mm. for me, I think... Uh, it really kicked off when I um, I started in college in '93, and uh, I don't know, the '94 was when you could see people starting to dress differently. The music was coming out of the pubs was different from what it had been yeah. in a big way, and uh, you know, and then '95, '96 things were just crackling, you know, it was everywhere, and you knew you knew that that was something was really bubbling and getting growing and uh spreading throughout the, the whole country and everyone was in some way getting a taste of it even if they liked it or not because there's no escape from it you know when you're <laughs> <That's right. laughs> in, in the pubs or like on the tv and when when things got really really big you know there was no escape you know there was it was mainstream tv and yeah so well that's right well i wonder if could we if we can maybe jump back a little bit from from Britpop, yeah. I know I know you also wrote this sort of road trip book, Mersey Paradise, which was kind of yeah. set around the kind of Manchester scene. Um, yeah, and I wonder, you know, were you were you a fan of that scene as well? I was, yeah. Um, it was uh, it was kind of life changing for me because up until that point, most. Not like most people, the um, the music I was exposed to was the music which was in our house, you know, as yeah. kids. And so, luckily enough, my parents were 
kind of into the the popular era or the popular music of the 60s so there was a lot of Beatles and Stones but there was also like easy listening and rock and roll from the 50s and knocking about but it was only until my, my brother really started collecting vinyl um kind of early 80s to mid 80s I started to dis, you know, discover um, popular bands through him and I say popular bands I mean to, people now would know them as classic bands like Queen and U2 <laughs> starting out, stuff like that. And uh, it was only that kind of um, background which then led me into thinking, okay, there's more, there's more, you know, it's not just what my parents had. And that kind of led me into, well, U2 was probably the first band which I really got into through my brother's collection. And then I started listening to Joy Division and Jesus and Mary Chain and stuff like that. And uh, then... One day I, I had a group of friends who were kind of quite gothic in their outlook and dress <laughs> and everything. And uh, they were they were maybe a year or two older than me and they kind of disappeared once they left school as I got to the end of my high school years. And then when I next saw them, they were wearing flares and flowery shirts and, <laughs> you know, Rennie hats and all this business. Yeah. Like, well, what happened here? You know, it was such a short period of time. They went from black trench coats to this and they said well you have to check this out and they played it was freaky dancing from the happy mondays and yeah. I said, okay this is this is something completely different and then it didn't take long it was like 88 going into 89 that summer of 89 with the stone roses first album that was it it was a hot summer um yeah i lived quite near the coast at that time in norfolk so it was spent up on the cliffs uh recreationally smoking as you could possibly say <laughs> and uh, and having that um that album playing non-stop and then there were the charlatans and then there was the, the spiral carpets and yeah that that all for me was a real that was my own my own music that was my own time you know that wasn't something i'd borrowed or listened to from somebody else that's something which i felt that um I'd discovered, or our, my friends and I had discovered, and even though we were stuck out in the arse end of nowhere, you know, um, we still got to see these bands which came through, and that yeah. was something which really, which really blew my mind that they would even bother to come to Norwich, which is like the biggest place around in the area where I'm from, and so all the bands came through, and uh, yeah, after that I was just sold, and then Manchester. The whole idea of Manchester and the music coming out of there kind of kept going after that and through that kind of lean period between the end of Manchester and the beginning of Britpop where you had the so-called shoegazers and then yeah. the grunge came along and everything kind of retreated a bit. But you know, I was always a big fan of Ride and some of those bands as well. So that kind of ticked over and then Suede came through and... Yeah, then then it all kind of led in. So that was how it started when I got into that. Yeah, well, uh, I, 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 have, I have a fairly similar experience. There was a kid in my year called uh, Dave Evans who was a bit, yeah, a bit kind of indier than now. You know, he, he wasn't a very oh, yeah. he wasn't a very cool kid. You know, he, he wasn't a popular kid, but he, he had a couple of older mates, and so they listened to exactly some of the stuff you're talking about. Something like slightly more gothic post-punk, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And then, it must have been after a summer holiday, I guess, because Dave turned up with a very floppy fringe. And <laughs> I, you know, I went back to him, I didn't, I didn't ask him about it, he had a floppy fringe, and 
I went back to his house one day, you know, to listen to some records, and he said, oh, you have to listen to this, and I, I'm fairly sure, uh, this might be false memory syndrome, of course, but I'm fairly sure, sure. he played um, Fishy's Eyes by the New Fast Automatic Daffodils. Oh, uh, New Fads, man. And, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yes. Well, I love them, yeah. And, and, and like you here in the Mondays for the first time, I remember thinking, I don't think I've ever heard anything like this. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It, it was it was so uh, brazenly uh, druggy, <laughs> and so yeah, uh, so so chemically induced, and I just yeah, and then from that, just like you, it was the charlatans and then spiral carpets, and yeah, and and you're right, there there is that kind of lull period with kind of almost non scenes, shoegaze and certainly grunge, yeah, was definitely a non scene. I I had no interest in that at all, but yeah, well that's interesting. Okay, so yes, Mercy Paradise. Then we we, yeah. we jump forward to what we really want to talk about. I guess, which is She's Electric, which is this sort of Britpop love story uh, that, that you wrote back in 2012, and yeah, I've been doing a little bit of reading and a little bit of uh, listening to some things you've, you've had to say about it, and um, one of the things that you said that I thought was really interesting was uh, this idea that... <sighs> Well, maybe you should set up the story first of all, and then I'll tell you what I thought was interesting. So give us a brief synopsis. Okay. So uh, She's Electric is a story of four mates who are at the very start of what would then be called lad culture, I suppose. And they're setting off on this journey together to try and work out who they really are. And it's a, it's a kind of coming-of-age story and uh, they're looking for themselves while also looking for uh, kind of like a real human connection, which is a kind of difficult thing to do if you ever, li- if you lived through that period, it was great and everything, but it was also kind of superficial in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and they were lacking identity. So they find their own identities in this group dynamic and this whole movement of Britpop and they buy into it wholesale. They completely buy into the fashion, the drugs, the music, the lifestyle, and think that they've found themselves. And in fact, they've found something which is great and wonderful and powerful, but when it all comes down to it, they're still not entirely sure who they are amongst all the big crowds and uh, the music and everything. So they then set out to try and find uh, the other half, well, the one, the one girl who can give meaning to all the good times and the fun with their mates and everything. And so the first, well, it, it's kind of divided into flashbacks to the, the 90s years in the Britpop era and also kind of, well, when it, now it's kind of in the past because I've written a <laughs> yeah, sure, ago, yeah. it, It's supposed to be the present day. And so they come back together and they try and recapture their youth and past glories and realize that, you know, they should be left in the past. They were great times then and you can't relive them. But the, the book pop years, those parts of the book are basically just stories of what happens when you're pursuing fun and hedonism and searching for the girls who can give meaning to your life in a way. And it's all got this obvious backdrop to things like Nedworth and Glastonbury and experimentation with drugs and alcohol. And the music obviously takes a huge role in it as well. So that's basically 
what she's electric's all about. Great. Well, thank you for doing that. So, um, I think last year, summer of last year, you were on the uh, Britpop uh, revival show, mm. and um, shout out to Nick for that. Well, just just a great guy, right? <laughs> just a great guy. <laughs> Um, he's very open and he's very supportive of anything like that. So, absolutely. Yeah, I have, well, I have big respect for him. I mean, he, he, he even me. I mean, I'm sure he must have been drunk when he, he made the decision. He even invited me to come on and, you know, kind of <laughs> whitter away in the background. I'm sure within about thirty seconds he was regretting that decision. But um, when but you were on, me on twice, so I, he must have a bad drinking habit. I think. Well, no. Well, I, I think the fact that I've been on once and you've been on twice says something much more significant <laughs> than that, Nick. Uh, I think it says something about the quality of your work and uh, oh, your, yes, your yes, interviews. Oh yes, of course. And, uh, <laughs> Let's not undersell ourselves. <laughs> well, well, I'm Scottish, so we only do underselling. Um, okay. So yeah, but look, when you were on that show, one of the things that you said that I, I thought was really interesting was the fact that she's electric as a thinly veiled autobiography and I'm I'm always deeply suspicious of people who talk about things being thinly veiled I think that's code yeah. for this is my autobiography so <laughs> how how, <laughs> so how thinly veiled is how, it how is it so well yeah those are the three questions I have. how thinly veiled is it and then if it's not so thinly veiled where were you where, where was Nick Amy's and who was Nick mm-hmm. Amy's during the Britpop era <laughs> Okay, um, I would say that it's thinly veiled like a Rizzler. <laughs> um, <laughs> some of the, some of the things which happen in the book actually did happen. They've been expanded, just like stories tend to when you like talk to your friends about them. Of course, twenty years later, you know. Of course, you know nobody rode a bicycle blindfolded into the canal in Amsterdam when you <laughs> visited not that that's in the book or ever happened but um I'm just saying that you know you could have certain stories and then oh yeah yeah you remember when you know you had that dog on your head and you know it <laughs> never happened so some of these stories actually did happen but they've been exaggerated for for the uh for the the novel but um yeah and some of them have been mel- um, melded together to make other stories. So a lot of it is personal experience. Some of it is covered up and uh, changed so there's no legal problems. And uh, (laughs) some characters in the book are kind of amalgamations of two or three friends rather than just one. So no one can really sue me. Right. And the names, of course, have been changed to protect the completely guilty. And yeah, so I would say the second part of your question, where was I? I was kind of in the position of the main character, which is Danny, who comes out of a long-term relationship from high school and uh, is kind of lost, doesn't know what to do. He's kind of been more... His identity has been wrapped up in that relationship for so long. And he's kind of lost trying to piece his life together. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And uh, that's when he looks around and that's when Britpop kind of starts up and he sees, okay, this could be for me and his friends are all also in a similar position, uh, position like that, but they're looking for something new and, uh, yeah, they get swept up in it. And I think a lot of the Britpop and especially the lad culture phenomenon was about 
being in a, a part of a big group which all had a similar identity, you know. Yeah. There wasn't a lot of individualism about it. You didn't need to think about that too much. That was a great thing about it. Like, okay, I love this music. Okay, that means I wear those clothes. Um, we go there. Those pubs are good. Those are bad. Blah, blah, blah. It's kind of like any kind of movement. You have your places, your music, your fashion. And uh, in the book, they find that that's kind of a blueprint for what they're looking for. Uh, it's not exactly what they're looking for because, of course, they find that out later on. But for for the characters in the book and for us at that time, that was kind of what was going on. You know, we're, as you said earlier on with the whole grunge thing, we didn't, myself and my friends, we didn't really get into that. It didn't really, it wasn't relevant to us. No. And when when Britpop did come along, which coincided with new steps and stages in our lives, it was just like, okay, this is this is for us. This this is built created, packaged, delivered for us. And so yeah. we'll have it. Thank you very much. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I, once again, I, I couldn't agree any more with that or, or relate to that any, any more violently than I do. And I, I think it's interesting, you know, I mean, you, you obviously know your your way around youth subcultures, Nick. And if, if you if you go back and, and look at people like you know developmental psychologists, like maybe Ericsson, maybe maybe young, but certainly Ericsson, talking about that stage of your life when you're an adolescent, you know, that kind of mid to late adolescence, and w- what we all have in common at that point is exactly what you've been describing there. You are looking for an identity. Who yeah. who are you? And, and the and I'm, I'm sure it's Ericsson says that the the, the counterpoint to that if you don't find an identity is isolation and that's really dangerous yeah. and and so i think mm-hmm. that, that Britpop was not just a wonderful thing for for the likes of you and i who were there but i i mourn the passing of a movement like that because i i, I look um you know i, I work in a, a a school as my my real job and mm-hmm. i look at the kids and there is no identity you know they yeah. they, they, they are uh an amalgam of Everything, you know, do, do, what kind of music do you like? Everything. Uh, what kind of yeah, films do you like? Yeah. Everything. Uh, and that there's no very clear sense of who's who and what's what. And I, I, I think that that, I think there's something quite sad about that. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I mean, I think up until the end of Britpop, I don't really know what came after that, which could, well, nothing compares to it, I would say. And I think, what Brett Anderson has been saying recently while he's been uh, pimping his book, which is very good. It is very good. Um, yeah. yeah, is that, um, you know, that was the last big movement. And, uh, I, you know, I will, my age kind of takes me out of the whole commentary at this point because I can't say what happened after that because yeah. I, I'm kind of in a state of arrested development after Britpop because that was it for me. <laughs> So that's kind of, you know, maybe something great happened after that, but it didn't interest me. But I don't think so. Not, and nothing could be that big again. No, I, no, think. I think that's I right. Think, but um, before that, of course, there were different little scenes, little movements, which kind of bridged the gap between the big ones from like modern 60s and punks and blah, blah, blah. There was always something you could be part of. But now I get the feeling, I don't know, I mean, there are subcultures which, you know, they're not relevant to me, but there are kids out there who, who are part of it. But, uh, yeah. 
Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting, you know, when, when you go along to some of these, you know, um, gigs, I mean, I've been to see lots of people recently, you know, there's there's definitely an appetite for the Britpop thing, and there are younger people there, you know, you can see yeah, younger people, um, you know, looking at that scene and thinking, right, well, I could maybe latch on to that, so, I don't know. Well, look, I wonder, that there's there's one other thing that I'd like to talk to you about, about She's Electric. Yeah. So, quite near the beginning, there's a, a description of, um, the pub, the orchard, yeah, where Danny and his mates kind of you know um, hang out, uh, and I guess it's, it's, it has, I guess it, it made me think of the good mixer. I'm sure it was much more likely to be a pub closer to home for you, um, yeah. and it, it's, it's such an evocative. I mean, it's only a couple of paragraphs really at, at that point, certainly. And you mentioned the jukebox and what was on the jukebox, and we've talked about that yeah. a little bit earlier as well about you know hearing music coming out of pubs, and all of a sudden it did, it did change. It wasn't simply red anymore, you know. It was yeah. it was other yeah, things. Yeah. Um, and you also talk about the the fashion, and here's here's what um, not that I need to tell you what you wrote, but the the bands that you list on the the jukebox at that point were Oasis, Blur, Pulp, Verve, Elastica. Yeah, and then yeah. the fashion you talk about Ben Sherman, Fred Perry, Adidas, Puma, and I think that all links into what we've just been talking about with that kind of sense of identity. But in relation to those bands, obviously you've written about yeah. Oasis, but of those uh, five bands, which were the the ones, or are the ones that you look back on with most fondness, or which are the ones that you would maybe still find yourself listening to? Ah, uh, yeah, it's a good question because um, I can't remember who I was reading. Or somebody mentioned it very recently. I don't want to bring up that quietus article about modern life is rubbish. <laughs> because, yeah, well, we just won't go there. Unless you really want to. <laughs> but, um, well, uh, look, here's, here's, here's the thing about, about the quietus, because I will go there, and then it'll save me having to write the piece that I was going to write about. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, just, yeah, a, a, a long time ago, Nick, I mean, maybe five years yeah. ago, um, Kevin Rowland came back with Dexys, mi- minus the Midnight yeah. Runners, and, and they had this fantastic album, um, you know, kind of concept album, and I managed to get tickets to see them in a tiny venue in Glasgow. And I went, and it was mind-bending. Like, I, I have a real thing about Kevin Rowland. I, I think he's one of the few people in popular culture who deserves the title of artist. I think maybe Patti Smith, David Bowie. Okay. But, but yeah. I, I think Rowland is a genuine bona fide artist. He's certainly a bona fide eccentric. And, oh, yeah, for sure. Um, so I went to see them, and then I came back, and The Quietest had, had a review of that particular gig, or a gig from that tour. And I put a below-the-line comment on and my below-the-line comment was a kind of really poorly written, kind of mimicking of those spoken word um, moments on the last um, Dexter's Midnight Runners album. Okay. You know, like, oh, hey, you know, what, what are you doing? No, oh, I'm, you know, nothing. You weren't talking about me, were you? Blah, blah, blah. You know, and there's this kind of verbal back and forward between uh, Kevin and one of the other guys in the band. And I did a kind of pastiche of that, I guess, uh, talking about how incredible the gig was and blah, mm-hmm. blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And the the editor of The, the Quiet is a guy called John Dorrance, who I think also um, writes. Uh, a couple of people had come on after my comment and said, "Oh, that, that that's a better review than the review that was on the site. What what what, what a fantastic uh, you know review." And John Dons came on and instead of saying nothing, or instead of just sort of saying, "Well, look, you know, we've we've got people that we use to write our reviews. You know, thanks thanks to uh, to Paul for for putting his comment up." Though he came on and said, "If I published a piece of shit like that, I'd be chased down the street and lynched." 
And I, <laughs> I remember, I remember thinking, that's that's quite mean. That's, that's quite mean spirited. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so then, you know, I, I was completely unsurprised to see uh, somebody from the Quietus uh, taking that kind of rather snipey, snidey, sneering, and I have to say, quite lazy. You know, I mean, within the first yeah. couple of paragraphs, Luke Turner has talked about how Blur were basically, you know, breathing new life into jingoism, and I think, you know, yeah, that's yeah, not yeah, true. Yeah. It's just not no. true. So. Anyway, no. I'll now take a breath. So, yeah. Okay. <laughs> the yeah, band's from that. I still, I still think you should write that because I'm very interested to see how where you go with that because I agree. But, uh, yeah, anyway, so um, what was I saying? Yeah, so I read somewhere that um, someone was saying about Britpop bands now, who do you still listen to? And, you know, you probably don't listen to the also rands in mm. converted commas because, you know, I love them all, mostly, you know. There yeah. were some which I could take or leave, but, you know, it was all part of it. But it's true that there are some which sound um, less, well, how can I say? They, they, they don't sound so relevant now. Yeah, I they think that's a little been, dated. Yeah. They sound a little bit dated. But I still go back to them and listen to them from time to time. But, I mean, I think, obviously, uh, if anyone who read the book can see that there's a love of oasis which runs through that and uh that kind of that stays till this day because even after Britpop ended i i continued to follow them and see them and despite the patchiness of their post millennial uh output there's still some great songs in there and it was oasis you know you can't you can't abandon them just for a few shoddy songs. No, nope, absolutely. So they always they 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 stay up there for me, and I listen to them. I would say pretty much every day. At least one or one or two songs come up, or I go searching for them. Um, I've gone back to Blur in a big way in, in recent years. I kind of got a bit sucked into the whole Blur Oasis thing, and I feel bad about that. Because yeah, I, I do Blur, as well. I was a Blur fan first, which is kind of. You know, going back to Modern Life is Rubbish, it was like, oh, I had that album on, I had this little crappy Fiesta at the time, and that was on the stereo all the time once that came out. You know, brilliant stuff. And then when they did Popsy, it was like, Pfft. okay, there's something completely different going on now. You know, after seeing them coming through the leisure period and then up and then changing again. And yeah, so when I kind of abandoned them, I after a couple of years, I, I thought, yeah, that was a bit shallow. <laughs> um, yeah, but, but we were young. We were young, right? You know, yeah, you're allowed yeah. to be shallow when you're in your early 20s. You know, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> but do, do you feel that there was, well, I think it's kind of an obvious question, but I really want to take, kind of get more of your opinion of it than get an answer. Um, do you think there was a, an active... Uh, kind of not an agenda, but people were asked to choose sides, weren't they? Definitely. Do you think that was a that, that was a media thing more than anything else? I don't I, think. I think so. I I I think if you if you took the the, the press out of it, you know, it, it just wouldn't have been an issue. I, th I think that the the press fanned those flames. I think that particularly there would have been very nice boys and girls, the enemy and Melody Maker, who went to very nice schools. 
um, and you know who just loved the uh, bit of rough of Oasis and and you know kind of saw themselves as kind of vicariously living their own sort of fevered wet dreams of what working class would be like through Oasis and so they kind of you know pushed that uh, that thing on people about picking a side and I, I did the same as you I, I picked a side and I picked Blur and I, I was on the Oasis podcast a while ago and I, I spoke to James there and I'd say I had to make a public apology about buying Country House <laughs> over roll with it you know I mean yeah. it's, it's obvious to anyone with even one half functioning ear which is the better song I mean neither one of them is a particularly great song but you know it's no. very very obvious um, but I was kind of yeah, sucked into it and I, yeah I, I feel quite badly about it. <laughs> I feel a, yeah, feel a yeah. certain amount of guilt. I should have bought both. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's the way I suppose we should have done it. But yeah, it was a kind of like, choose your side. Are you uh, Blair Oasis, Adidas or Puma? And it kind of, <laughs> that's right. yeah. It's, yeah. Can't you just mix it up? Um, anyway. But that's that's now. that's as old as time with with youth subcultures, right? Oh, yeah. You know, it's it's, it's, yeah, it's yeah, the yeah, mods and the rockers, true. it's it's the the skinheads and the punks, you know, it's your you know your football casuals and your whoever. Well, yeah, everybody because yeah. they hated everybody. But you know, so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there, there's always been that combative element, um, you know, that idea of having to take a side. You know, there's that lovely scene in Quadrophenia, right, where Jimmy's lying in the public baths and uh, yeah. Ray Winston's next door. You know. Yeah. I can't remember what he's singing though. He's singing some, you know, rock and roll standard, and Jimmy's yeah. doing the kinks over the top of it, and they're throwing the key to the wash house over at each other. And it's yeah. like, well, actually, both of these songs are really great. <laughs> couldn't couldn't we just enjoy them both? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's that's a great scene. Yeah, and that sums it up. Yeah, it's exactly as you say. It's like, well, yeah, maybe those two songs are better than Country House and Roll. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's a matter of opinion as well. But, um, well yeah, that's true. Going back to what you were saying about what bands you still listen to, um, I um, made a note that you went to see the Blue Tones last night. Oh, my goodness. Which, um, yeah, good for you. And <laughs> and um, I've started doing this little thing for my daughter. She's getting a, um, a classic album on vinyl every month. Oh, wonderful. Trying to, at least trying to kind of build up this collection for, for when she's old enough. And I got expecting to fly on vinyl oh. the other month. And uh, I forgot how amazingly great, great that album is. And the songs are just perfect. They're perfect pop songs. And I remember seeing the Blue Tones a couple of times back in the day, but I haven't, haven't seen them on any kind of uh, reunion. I haven't seen Mark Morris do his solo stuff or anything like that. So... I wanted to ask you what was your take on it. I haven't read what you've written or if you've well, put anything up on it. I, I, I love the Blue Tones. I, I, I think, you know, the, the, the Blue Tones are, and it's a, it's a you know, to, to quote Morrissey, we're going to dial a cliche. You know, they, they are yeah. hugely underrated. Um, and I, I saw the Blue Tones like you a couple of times during the, during the Britpop era. And then a little while ago, I went to interview Mark. Uh, doing a solo show in a, a little town in Fife along with Chris Helm from the Seahorses and he, oh, yeah. well, he, yeah. he was without doubt the most um, sort of funny and witty and charming and erudite uh, human being that I'd met in a very long time and incredibly nice as well so yeah. then last night we, we went along to this, this gig and I, I, mean, I, I almost struggled to 
put it into words, I'm, I'm not entirely sure that I've seen many gigs that were any better. I've seen lots really? of gigs that were, oh. that were really good, but th- this, there, was, yeah. there was just, you know, I mean, there, there were B-sides and album tracks and, and things that you'd forgotten about. That if, if, that had been, if that had been all they played, you would have walked away happy. And then, then they, they, they throw in things like After Hours and Slight Return and Blue Tonic and um, mm. F and, you know, Solomon Bites the Worm or whatever it was, you know, they, they just... And the, the thing that really struck me was, one of the things that Mark said about the Blue Tones when I interviewed him was that he felt they were very much the frilly shirts in amongst the Fred Perry and Ben Sherman. <laughs> they, they were slightly more delicate, slightly more fragile, possibly. It's like more of a traditional indie band, arguably. Yeah. But live, it was this wall of noise and melody and music and tune and mayhem. And it was loud. It was so yeah. loud. And, and Adam <laughs> Devlin, wow. I mean... What a, what a player! I mean, it was just it it, it was honestly Nick. If, if you get the chance, if they do something in Europe or if they're doing something at Starship or whatever, um, or if they come here to Scotland again, there's a, a bed for you to sleep on here. Ah, come and catch them. Excellent. It was it was phenomenal. I loved it. I loved it. Hmm. I definitely want to catch them again because it's uh, it's been a lot of years, and uh, yeah, just this. Uh, just the memories which flood back from from playing it again. I remember I was uh, crashing at a friend's house. I was in between addresses at that time. I'd just come back from traveling, and it was before going to university. And, uh, yeah, that was the soundtrack. And I can remember it being a beautiful summer. And, uh, yeah, things like the fountainhead were just kind oh. of, like, drifting around in my head, just strolling about, not having anywhere to go apart from that pub or that friend's house and not many cares in the world at that point. And uh, that that all comes back from that. It's a very warm record for me. So yeah, I yeah agree. I'd love to see them again. I'd love to see. And, and you're right. I think they do have this kind of reputation that they were a little bit more delicate. But as you say, as a live act, and um, you know, I don't know, I can't remember completely what they were like back in the day, but yeah. If, they're, if they've got a bit of a harder edge now, or if it's just, uh, yeah, I can't wait. Hopefully, they'll, I'll get the chance to see them. Well, but so I, I hope so too. Um, it was, it was, it was very, very good. All right, but, well, could you maybe um, give me one more band that you you maybe maybe revisit still from that era that we could maybe uh, talk about? Ah, oh, one more band. Um, I'm a Big fan of suede. Ah, I have to say, good. Um, I think I, I kind of tailed off a little bit when they started uh, when they brought out well, the last two albums, maybe. But um, I've got I've got a special kind of connection because when I first started out in uh, in journalism, when I started doing music journalism, I got my first kind of chance to talk to bands working on the university newspaper. I wasn't at the university. It was a, it was a work placement uh, thing from the college, and I got a choice of, I don't know, working in some crappy place in the city, some shop or whatever, and uh, going to the university and working at the student union. So I picked that, 
and uh, they stuck me on the, the university newspaper because I said that I wanted to be a writer and I was getting into it and stuff like that. And so I worked on the, the UEA's um, student newspaper and they kind of threw me in at the deep end. I think within a couple of days of being there, they said, oh yeah, Suede are playing here. Two days from now, um, you've got a television, a television, what I'm talking about, a telephone interview with Matt Osman tomorrow. And uh, yeah, <laughs> prepare for that. I was like, okay. So <laughs> this is kind of the, the dream, you know, you get to Absolutely. talk to the, the bands and stuff like that. And yeah, well, I, this is kind of a comment to the side. I found that while paying my dues, you start off with the bass player and the drummer. And you know you're kind of making it when you eventually get like the lead singer. So that was kind of no no disrespect to Matt Osman, who's a lovely guy, and uh, gave a very good interview. It was just uh, he was the first rung on the ladder. Actually, yeah, yeah, he was my first. He was my first interview, and uh, yeah, and then of course I then got to do the um, review of the gig. So that was my um, introduction to. Yeah, blagging your way in for free, which <laughs> I have done for many years. <laughs> and I'm very happy to have said that it's been very fruitful, fruitful years as well. <laughs> but yeah, so for, for that for that reason, Suede hold a very dear place for me. And of course, the music's great. You know, oh, first fantastic. Two or three albums for me are like, yeah, yeah. No, they, I, I would I would they, agree they with they that stand as well. Out for me. Yeah, I mean, for, for me, they, they were a nice connection point for me between the Smiths, which is where I had kind of been. Yeah. You know, from about the ages of 16 to 18, 19, the Smiths was kind of it. It was, it was almost, in fact, it was obsessional, which I don't think is an unusual story for, for people who fall oh, under no. the spell oh, of the Smiths. But Suede oh, were sorry. kind of gateway out of just that very insular world of the Smiths. And, and you know, we, we, it's not difficult to spot those people who have never escaped from that tiny little, you know, Smith's bubble. Um, you know, yeah, I went to the yeah. Morrissey recently, and there were, you know, men older than me and with less hair than me, if one can imagine such a thing, you know, still trying furiously well, uh, to, to tug it into a quiff, you know. Uh, <laughs> like one, one, one rogue hair, you know, sort of wound round yeah. on itself, almost like a, a, sort of like, you know, Douglas Hurd's spitting image puppet from the 80s, this kind of, yeah, yeah, like a unicorn or something. Yeah, absolutely like that. Yeah, <laughs> like, like one of my daughter's My Little Ponies. I, I believe they're called, a, they're called an alicorn, I believe. Uh, okay, <laughs> wow, okay. And, and so Swede were a great way out of that because then yeah. I started, you know, finding other people. Um, and as you said a, a few minutes ago, they were very much the, the real beginnings of Britpop, right? They, they were the first yeah. kind of rejection oh, of okay. grunge. Um, in fact, I, I spoke to, to um, James Cook from the Flamingos the other day um, on, on the podcast, and, yeah. and he has got a very, very similar tale to you in terms of, you know, feeling that Suede kind of shifted things for him, um, and they play a, a key role. In fact, their original drummer in the Flamingos was Simon Gilbert of Suede. Oh, um, really, yeah? Yeah, they, they were a band, in those days they were called The Shade. And I, I said on the podcast, I can't decide whether that's a great name for a band or a terrible name for a band. Uh, but I think I think probably settling on the Flamingos was a good idea. But yeah, so Simon Gilbert was their drummer. And it's interesting that, you know, the more people I speak to, there are certain bands that, that keep cropping up. The Blue Tones is definitely one. A lot of people have a lot of love for the Blue Tones. And, and Suede are the other one. You know, So when you come away from those big hitters that, that are on the jukebox in the orchard and, and she's electric... Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, yeah. Actually, there, there are other bands that that really hold a special place. Hi. Hello, Nick. Yes. Well, let's uh, let's let's uh, round <laughs> things off. I was just saying that. Yeah. Once you come away from those big hitters on the jukebox um, in in the orchard, and she's electric. Yeah. It's actually, those other bands that that are the ones that you kind of find yourself going back to. They hold a real special place for people, um, as indeed the whole yeah. theme does. Well, look, Nick. Let me just uh, repeat what I said at the beginning. Thank you so much uh, for, for finding a little bit of time to speak to me tonight. Um, and no ma- problem at all. Absolutely no, no problem. Maybe, maybe you could just uh, give a little plug to the, to the movie. Are you still looking for people to support and to pledge? Yeah, yeah. We, um, we ran into a little, uh, well, quite a big bump at the end of last year. The film company which had taken on the project actually um, went under. Oh. So... <laughs> That left me with a script, which is very good, which was developed by iFilms, who no longer trade or do any business, which is a bit of a shame, such as the state of uh, independent film, I'm I'm afraid to say. But so we still have a project. We still have a lot of people in high places who are willing to be involved once we get past the development stage. And that's the point we're at at the moment. We're trying to get enough money together to get the development underway, and then the people who are people are in place who are going to help it go further. We have a script, we have supporters, we have big names in the wings. We just need to kind of breach that. We've got a ten thousand euro, uh, euro uh, ten thousand pounds, sorry, uh, limit, which we're we're working towards, which will help us move into the next phase and then uh, we've got people who are actually going to take it on from there. But we're also looking for like a, a company if anyone's interested or knows anybody who knows any directors or knows any production companies who are looking for a new project. We've got a pretty much ready-made package ready to go if anyone's interested. But uh, without that, we're going to plot on and we're going to try and get it made another way. Uh, there is no yeah, do or do not, there is no try, as someone <laughs> said once, and uh, yeah, we're going to do it, and uh, I think from the support that we've got from hundreds, if not thousands of people on social media have been like amazing, the support and people who are always uh, just, you know, forwarding stuff to friends about us or retweeting or liking, that's all going into building up the profile which we can go to people with and say, look, there's clearly a big audience for this. So there you go. That was my conversation with Mr. Nick Amies. Remember, that's at Nick underscore Amies on the Twitter or at She's Electric Moth on Twitter. be great if you could give both accounts a follow and please do consider following me at Max and taking a look at the blog www.themildmanneredarmy.com Thanks for your support, guys. Bye.